Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome, or hopefully welcome back, to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, you should be by now, but if you're not, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and yes, the real stuff, which is exactly what we do with this podcast. Now, here's where it changes a little bit. We usually bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts. We'll keep doing that. But this time around, we're doing something a little bit different. We've had some questions from our listeners, and we thought rather than try and answer them offline, we'd do it as part of a special podcast episode. And look, this is a brand new format, but hopefully we'll do more of it. If you have any questions for us, if you want us to answer anything on this podcast, hit us up, Twitter and Instagram at TMFScottP. Or on Facebook, it's just facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. Follow me there anyway, because it's fun. I like chatting with you. Uh, but also use the DM feature in any of those to ask us any questions, and we will answer them for you. And when I say we, this time I'm going to introduce you to, frankly, the man who makes me sound good if I do. If this podcast is half decent, it's all about Mr. Ed Gooden, I spectacularly great producer. If it sucks, that's all about me. But uh, any of the good bits are almost certainly Ed's good work. Ed, g'day. Thank you for joining us on air. Anytime, Mr. Scott Phillips. You're far too kind. Not at all, mate. Not at all. Hey, our listeners know me well enough to know that if uh, if it's half good, mate, it's probably your good work. So uh, again, if you hate it, well, it's probably my fault. If you love it, then you can thank Ed separately. Mate, you've got some questions teed up for us, though. So um, I'll throw to you to throw me the questions, and then we'll, uh, we'll see how we go from there. First one comes from... Casey in Caulfield. Hey Scott, I've been seeing a lot of talk about this Silicon Valley Bank and how it all collapsed. Is this something that will affect Australians? Will it be like the GFC? This is such a great question from Casey because the and let, let's let's speaking of the good oil, speaking of giving it straight, the honest answer is we don't know. So at the moment, it doesn't affect us. I don't think it's very likely to affect us for the record. So I also want to say that uh, we're, in, we're in, the, uh, in the territory here of forecasting, predicting, prognosticating. Uh, we don't know what's happening. So let's, let's wind back just a little bit to kind of give a bit of detail on what's going on. We know during the GFC that the whole global financial system froze up. And by most reports, we were something like 24 hours away from complete financial collapse around the world. And if that sounds serious, it should. We, we literally were that close. Um, some really good regulators in different countries around the world did what they needed to do to improve and fix things to make sure that everything didn't collapse. And that's probably the first thing I want to leave you with, which is we, you know, the, the fact there are regulators on the job is exactly what they're there for, exactly what you want them to do, and they will do everything to stop it being a problem like the GFC. The second thing is because of the GFC, we've kind of been here before, we've seen this movie before. So regulators are starting from step four, five, or six in the process rather than having to start from step number one, and that's really good too. Now, basically Silicon Valley Bank, and then of course, we've seen Credit Suisse, there's another three US banks, if you can believe it, either collapsed or, or on the verge of and being saved from collapse uh, by regulators and other banks. The, the reality there is they simply just ran the bank badly. Uh, they, in Silicon Valley Bank's case, just didn't have a really good handle on the simple things. <laughs> Honestly, banking 101, assets and liabilities, for example. What do we have? What do we owe? Do they match? Are they due at the same times? This is literally what any apprentice banker should be learning in you know, the first three weeks of working in a bank. And yet, they got themselves in trouble. Now, the fact they got themselves in trouble is the point because it doesn't matter really how it happens. It matters what comes next. And globally, if banks stop trusting each other, 
if businesses, if depositors stop trusting the banks, then that's what causes the sort of financial collapse we've just talked about. So that's the risk. The good news for Australia's banks, they are very, very well capitalized. That means there's lots of assets. They are going to cover the liabilities almost certainly. No guarantees because no one knows for sure anything in terms of the future, but certainly it's not in terms of banking. So it's, it's a good thing that our banks are very well run. They are very well regulated. They have plenty of money on the sidelines. And of course, remember that a, a Australian deposit-taking institution, an ADI in Australia, is also covered by that government guarantee. So right now, it doesn't affect us. If it becomes a global issue, it could affect us. If there are similar concerns with any Australian banks, it also could affect us. Those things are very, very unlikely. And if they do, it's also very likely that the government, the regulator will step in to make sure we don't have a problem. Now, as an investor, just to finish this question off, Casey, it's important to think about what you're investing in. Now, I can't give you personal advice. What I can say to people is if you think about what's happening in terms of the banks and banks, I mean, plural, there are so many Australians, including probably a decent number listening, who have 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60% of their investment portfolios in the banks. Now, whether or not we have a collapse, whether or not banks are more risky than other businesses, this is a good time, I reckon, to ask yourself, am I really, do I really have an appropriately diversified portfolio? Am I so sure that the banks will never, ever, ever have trouble that I want maybe up to or more than half of my portfolio in a single sector. I know they've done well in the past. I know a lot of people have made a lot of money holding them, but you don't have to keep it the way you made it. And I just reckon, Casey and others, if you're listening, uh, just, just think about how your portfolio is structured. Make sure, not just banks, any sector, any industry, make sure you're not taking too much risk. Is there, this, this is probably me speaking from my own experience, Scott, but also maybe thinking about what Casey might be asking with that last point is, like I personally personally feel so assured with the banks, you know, like I, I open up my, like my online banking app and I look at it and I'm like, that's my money. Yeah. It's there yes. <laughs> and it's always going to be there. But we know that's not the case with just how banking uh-huh. works. Is there a similar investment kind of category mm. or industry that can give that same kind of assurance that we feel around the banks or is it just a mentality thing, do you think? That's a great question, mate, because if we think, again, it's, it's, there's different answers for different groups of people. As a depositor, up to 250 grand, your money is as safe in the bank as anywhere else in the world. There is no safer place to have value stored. You know, properties can, can burn down, insurance companies can go broke, gold can be lost, dug up, stolen. Um, as a depositor, uh, again, no guarantees, but as a depositor, I don't know of any safer place to put cash, cash, cash that you're not investing. You just got aside and if you've got a quarter of a million dollars, you've probably got bigger issues or maybe maybe it's a first class problem. But up to that level, that's a really good place. As an investor, here's the thing. While we talk about Silicon Valley Bank being bailed out, the bank itself wasn't bailed out. The bank itself closed. The shareholders have lost, if not absolutely everything, close enough to everything to be indistinguishable. So as an investor, as a shareholder, you want to be really, really careful about what you assume. I hear so many people, including some of my colleagues from time to time, say, oh, the banks will always be bailed out. The government will always look after the banks. It's fine. And what they are saying is, what they think they're saying is the shareholders will be fine. I'm going to tell you, in the UK, in the UK during the GFC, Northern Rock, people might remember that bank, their shareholders wiped out. Lloyd's, the Lloyd's TSB, the UK bank, during the GFC, the government basically now, at that point, owned 90%. They, they assumed ownership of 90% of Lloyd's. In other words, your money lost 90% of its value because the government said, okay, 
Everyone who's got a shareholding, you now have one-tenth of what you used to own. We've got the rest, thanks very much. And so it really does depend on who we're talking about here and in what context. You can be a depositor and a shareholder, of course. Shareholders are as safe as you can be in this on this earth, up to a quarter of a million bucks. Above that, it's open question. Now, all depositors were actually saved at, at SVB, at Silicon Valley Bank. That may well be the case. Um, in Australia, if it came to it, I wouldn't assume so, so be careful. Um, but... As, an, as a shareholder, just be careful because you know even if the bank is saved, in air quotes, you can't do air quotes on a podcast, but you get what I'm saying. Even if the bank is saved, it'll be the depositors and the lenders that are saved, not the shareholders. That's not maybe not the answer I wanted. I wanted you to go, <laughs> I wanted you to go, hey Ed, Everything will be fine. Your, your money is safe in this other thing that you'll never have to worry about. You'll be totally fine. <laughs> Let's jump into our next question. This next one comes from Romy in Geelong. Mm-hmm. I see so many investment apps flying around, which I'm assuming means a huge amount of amateur investors are putting money into the stock market. Is that dangerous? Is there a boom that could potentially go bust or am I just misreading how it all works? So whenever you see a lot of anything flying around, a lot of things getting popular, you got to ask yourself whether it is a fad or a trend. Now, that's not that's not always necessarily obvious. Um, think about yo-yos for those a little bit older. Think about Pokemon cards for those a little bit younger. And Ed, you'll have to tell me what the what the proper young kids are talking about these days. Fidget spinners, I think, Scott. Yeah. There we go, fidget. Well, so so that's a really so you know imagine imagine if you'd stocked up on fidget spinners because they're going to be collectible items. Everyone wanted one. Everyone had them. You open a fidget spinner store. This is going to be great. I don't know how many are still around these. I just don't see them very often, so I'm going to assume the craze might have passed. Um, whenever you see a lot of a lot of kind of uh, drive in one single direction in a hurry, sometimes you know sometimes it, it is a new world. The internet was a brand new thing that truly was revolutionary and new and and sustainable, right? So that's 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 one example. The other is those things we've just talked about: Beanie Babies, Pokemon cards, uh, yo-yos. Take take what you want, and the more. People get carried away with that thing. The more people are kind of, you know, thoughtlessly following the crowd, the old lemmings off the side of the cliff, the more you should be concerned about what's going on. Uh, because people, you know, it's one of the things, you know, if, if they're doing that thinking, then that's a really good sign. Because what tends to happen is not, I mean, it could be good or bad in and of itself. But if you're not thinking on the way in, there's a very good chance you're not doing that thing, whatever it is, with true long-term thought. And so the fad, the trend, the excitement, the FOMO that takes you in, when it goes away, is probably going to drag you back out again. We see this in share price of individual companies all the time. Do the little, little tech stocks, little speculative stocks. People all of a sudden, hey, this is this is really cool. This is going up. This is exciting. Jump in. And it goes a bit more. And everyone says, see, I told you it was going to go up. Buy some more shares. And then everyone's talking about it. So I want to be one of the cool kids because I think everyone must be right. And you know, there's nothing worse than someone else making money when you're not. So you want to jump in as well. All of a sudden, everyone jumps in. And then either, or maybe both, the, the, the thing you're investing in doesn't fulfill its promise and you just get disappointed. Or it's one of those, hey, now everyone look over here now. And everyone runs in the other direction, right? The new cool thing takes off. And so the old cool thing gets left behind because it's not cool anymore. And that's a really 
important way to think about what's happening with some of these investment apps. There are some good investment apps, some really good ones. I, I've used a couple. They're great. They're really good um, for, for serious long-term investors. When I say serious, I don't mean boring, by the way. I just mean people who are actually in it for the long term. So that that's really good. But when you see everyone trying to jump in, we saw the Wall Street bets thing a while ago, if you, if you kind of caught up with that and the, the whole GameStop saga, and that was its own thing. And again, it was the same idea of just the crowd got excited about a thing and that thing took off. So the apps are great in and of themselves, but they will, I think, as you kind of assume, drag a whole lot of people in who frankly either shouldn't be investing or should be, but get sucked into doing it badly. And that does tend to mean there's a problem. Now, the good news for anyone else who's doing this is the weight of money, the sheer amount of money being invested by um, the rest of the, the, the market is going to be much, much, much bigger than whatever the new cool kids do, are doing on the investment apps, right? The the billions of dollars managed by big investment firms, the hundreds of millions of dollars managed by individual fund managers or individual investors who aren't doing this stuff absolutely dwarfs what's happening with the apps. So the apps themselves kind of have a big impact on the market. What you need to be a little bit careful of is, again, the, the sort of the cool stocks I just talked about. Uh, I, if you've been investing for any length of time, you'll know how what they, how these cycles go. Um, you know, buy now, pay later. Used to, lithium is probably the big thing now. Before that, it was buy now, pay later. Before that, I think it was probably graphene was one of this fantastic new mineral or metal that was found, the commodity was going to revolutionize the world. Before that, it was something else. Before that, it was something else. And so, yes, it, it, it's absolutely, I think the boom that might go bust is the cool stuff. The easier you make it for someone to give in to FOMO, the more likely they are going to, and the more likely there's going to be an impact. So on the market, no, not, not an issue at all in my view. On individual stocks, if you get sucked into the same kind of ideas, yes, absolutely. And I think those booms that could go bust, you might get a look at buy now, pay later itself. The, some of the share price losses there are 90, 95%. On some, in fact, a couple have actually gone broke. They were the hot new thing. Though everyone's going to make a fortune and now no one's going to make a fortune. And that's, that's important too. So the apps themselves aren't the problem. They are kind of the gateway drug though. They let people get in on that. Uh, they do make it so easy not to do your due diligence, not to do your work, not to think about what you're doing, just do it because everyone else is doing it. It becomes, frankly, almost more like a gambling app than an investing app. And that's probably, again, great question because I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, and I think that's very, very likely what's going on in some small, dark corners of the market. Has there been a um, kind of a, a period, you mentioned the like the internet's obviously early 2000s, late 90s. Has there been another period where there's been like a huge, such a huge influx in money entering the market? Like, or has the popularization of these types of apps, has that, has that even increased the, the money a substantial amount? Not the money, but the activity. And again, that's because, you know, there, there are, the, the big end of town, it's a horribly lazy cliche, but the big end of town has so many, literally hundreds of billions of dollars invested here. And the app makers are targeting the, the, the young investor with hundreds or thousands of dollars. And so the sheer side, you won't see an influx of dollars of cash. Um, and so I don't really care about the, the amount of money that's coming here. What I care about is those people who are getting sucked into the apps, who try it for a day, a week, a month, or a year and go, well, that investing thing sucks. You know, I got I got all excited about it and lost all my money. I'm never doing that again. And so, it, you know, it's costing people. I'm gonna say their futures sounds a bit about over the top, but you know what I mean. It, it's it's potentially dragging people out of a market that, if they'd done well, would have really served them beautifully 
in their over the long term for, for decades and decades and decades eventually to retirement um, investing is spectacularly good but if you get if you get sucked in and then spat out by this stuff that's the real that's the real risk uh, look in terms of the internet I'm trying to think mate I mean crypto is the most recent one in terms of the big money that's kind of a big deal maybe turns into something maybe it doesn't we're still on that who knows phase right now um, so that's probably that one there was a rush into shares in the early 80s um, and the late 80s the uh, ironically the movie wall street which is a wonderful movie was supposed to be a warning uh, to everyone of the, of the excesses of capitalism and, and of stock market gambling and by all reports it just was a fantastic recruitment film for the investment industry so uh, everyone was supposed to learn that it was a terrible thing and everyone learned that gordon gecko was a, was a cult hero and should be should be followed so um look there and this is the other thing mate every every this is so bank regulation back to silicon valley for a second you know we learned our lessons in 2007 8 9 we put laws in place after that by 2018 the u.s government was already rolling back some of those laws that were seen as too onerous and five years later surprise surprise here's where we find ourselves investment memory tends to be about a decade long give or take so honestly We've had buy now, pay later. We're having these investment apps. Give it 10 years. There will be something in probably late 2020s that, that takes off again in a similar way for similar reasons because people forget the lessons or they just weren't around for the last lot. Um, and so unfortunately, history tends to repeat itself a lot when it comes to investment speculation and and people just forgetting what we should already know, which is that you know be, being a little bit sensible actually makes sense. Yeah, it's it's loose, Scott. I don't love it, but it is uh, it is what it is. That's I a guess. great description. All right, let's jump into our final question, which is from Michael in Melbourne. I saw a headline the other day that talked about commodities being a solid investment in stagflation. Scott, firstly, what is stagflation, and are commodities a good investment during stagflation? Man, this is, and you know what, I and I, I have one, I have one over you on in one particular important way. I, I generally speak. If people listen to my other podcast, Motley for Money, and that we also do with Listener, of course. They know that I hate young people as a matter of course because they've got what I haven't got, which is more time on this planet. <laughs> uh, not, not because they're not because they're bad people. Just I would give anything for another twenty years of life, right? If I go back twenty years, I would absolutely do it. I, we make a make a bit of a joke about it. Um, one of the benefits of having, I was going to say grey hair, but in my case, no hair, is uh, stagflation was around in the early eighties the early 1980s. And so if you've been around for a little bit, you kind of know about it or remember it. Uh, so there is a little, a tiny benefit of, of having been around for a bit. So stagflation, so stag being stagnant and flation obviously being inflation. And if you whack those together, kind of like the Tomcats and the uh, the Benefers and all those kind of cool uh, portmanteaus, I'm, I'm, I'm assured they're called, whacking two words together and making a new word out of it. That's how stagflation comes about. So a stagnant economy with inflation. And the, the, the real, this was kind of almost, I, th- I think it was unprecedented in 1980. The idea that normally inflation also, A, came about by and almost always accompanied high growth. So you had big economic growth and high pr- rising prices. And it wasn't perfect, but at least it was something. Or you had no inflation and a stagnant economy, which again, wasn't perfect, but it wasn't nothing. Stagflation is literally the worst of both worlds. So it's the idea of not only you're not getting any economic growth, you're also paying higher prices. We're not quite there yet. Uh, it is fair to say inflation is too high, but right now Australian economic growth, global economic growth is pretty good. The the challenge, and I think why the, the question about stagflation is a good one, is the the central banks around the world, so the Reserve Bank and the US version called the US Federal Reserve and others everywhere else around the world, are trying to navigate us out of inflation 
but also and and that will probably involve slowing economic growth maybe even negative economic growth for a while if they can do that we don't have stagflation because inflation comes down so at the moment we've got a growing economy and inflation if they get it right inflation comes down the economy slows so you don't have stagflation either because you don't have the flation bit you might have a stagnant economy for a while and in theory it goes back to then growing moderately with moderate prices that's the that's the perfect world that the reserve bank is desperately trying to engineer if they get this wrong so for example right now interest rates through the roof inflation through the roof the economy is not yet slowing so again we're not in stagflation yet but if the rba causes a meaningful slowdown or a recession but they can't get prices under control they will have engineered stagflation which is the worst of all those worlds we just talked about. So it's a great question because that is what a lot of people are speculating might be the case. Now, so the first part of the answer though is, uh, well, are they a good investment during stagflation? The first question I suppose is we don't know if we'll have stagflation. And what I want our listeners to be a little bit careful of is making too many predictions. Because it's really easy to say, well, obviously we're going to have stagflation, so what should I buy? And I think that in itself is potentially the first mistake. I have a, I've ripped off a saying from somebody else, which is prepare, don't predict. So what if there is stagflation? How does my portfolio look? But equally, if I don't have stagflation, or we don't have stagflation, how does my portfolio look? Because there are, so let's go back to the, the, um, the COVID crash. Plenty of people said, oh, the market's crashed. I'm selling everything. I will buy back in once COVID is gone. Now, Ed, you know, and I know, and our listeners know, COVID hasn't gone. And yet the market has gone up massively since the lows of 2020. So those people who said, well, obviously COVID's going to be around forever, so I'm not going to buy until COVID's finished, they'd be stupid. Missed out on a, on a gain of something like 60 or 70%. Like it's massive. From, from, that, from the bottom of that crash, if you'd sold out and said, I'm going to wait till it's over, you've cost yourself an absolute fortune. Uh, so just be careful about what you assume will happen. Uh, people, and people do this with gold all the time, currencies all the time. Obviously, this is going to happen. The Chinese hard landing has been predicted since about 2012, right? Every year someone's, oh, China's going to have a hard land. It's going to be terrible. And again, those things, so, you know, preparing for it is important. Predicting it will be the case is, is I think, as risky, probably riskier, honestly, than not preparing for it. Because if, you, if, you, if you're all in on only one outcome, you can really bring yourself undone. So that's, that's probably the first thing. I think second thing in terms of commodities is, as an investor, what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to look for. So let's talk about the, the most important commodity when it comes to investing, and that's gold. There is a general view that gold is what they call a hedge against inflation. That is, it's an asset that actually tempers the impact or offsets the impact of inflation. Broadly speaking, if you have cash, and you know, if you've got 100 bucks and inflation is 5% a year, in three years' time, you still get your 100 bucks, but it's only worth 80. And you go, well, bugger, you know, I have my cash, I lost value, but if I own uh, something that is fixed in supply, like gold, for example, people still want it. It's probably going to go up in line with, with prices. Therefore, I'm offsetting that impact of inflation. Maybe my gold of 100 bucks now is worth 120 bucks in three years' time. So it's not going up massively, but it's at least kept pace with inflation. And you're better off in gold than cash. That's, that's kind of the way people talk about commodities as, as investing during these periods of time. The, the record is mixed. The record is mixed because it depends on when you finish and when you start and what the price is already assuming. Because here's the problem with, with, with trying to kind of second guess the market is if everybody else thinks it's a solid investment during stagflation, everyone else is already going to have bought it or has, has go, either has bought it, sorry, or is going to buy it. 
in which case the price is already high, reflecting that idea that's a solid investment during stagflation. So historically, you look back and say, oh, look, gold went up about the same time as there was stagflation, therefore it's a good investment. It is, but only if you get in before everybody else. And to get in before everybody else, you have to know stagflation's coming and then it's turtles all the way down from there. In other words, it's really hard to be able to front run the whole idea A, because if you're wrong, you lose your money. B, because once you know it's going to happen, everyone else already knows that too, and they've already bought, the price is already up. So looking backwards with investing is really, really fraught. Uh, Based on exactly that, that by the time you know what's going on, everyone knows what the the right answer was, but it's already already too late. Uh, So people, you know, when share prices crash, someone says, why didn't you sell yesterday? Well, we didn't know. By the time you know that something's happened, it's too late. And you, you, there is no, there is, there's almost never a point in time in between those two facts where you know it's true, no one else knows it's true, and you can take action. It's just, it's just really, really, really hard to do. So I, I guess the answer is, are commodities a good investment during stagflation? Yes, often. But can you actually make that investment in sufficient time with sufficient confidence and clarity, and then get out on the other end to really pick the eyes out of that trade? That's a really, really, really difficult thing to do. Uh, I, my general investment approach, as most of our listeners know, is just to be long-term regardless. So we will move through stagflation. We will go through, there'll be a recession every seven or so years for the next century, right? Avoiding them would be crazy. I mean, if you could, of course you would. Trying to avoid them, probably crazy. We started by talking about the long-term returns of the stock market. Uh, you know, I've said a million times that 10 grand became 130 grand over 30 years in the stock market. And that was despite stagflations and recessions and crashes and COVIDs and everything else, despite all that stuff, you still got a 13-fold return on your money. You didn't have to try and guess what might happen, how long it might last, how bad it might get, what other assets to buy. Generally speaking, it feels almost neglectful <laughs> to, to say, don't do anything. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, some people will do it. Some people will get it right. Some people will get it horribly, horribly wrong. Really smart fund managers, by the way, sold during COVID waiting for the pandemic to be over to buy back in. They cost themselves a fortune. One really good, I'm not going to name him because I don't want to embarrass him nor do I want to pick a fight with him, but like really good long-term market-beating fund manager, his performance now is absolutely average, as in literally about the same as the market because he missed that one big call. He tried to make a big call and missed it and gave up almost all of that outperformance just trying too hard. So I, I get the intent, I get the idea, I get why you'd want to think about it, just be a little bit careful. Don't be too clever by half. End up costing yourself money accidentally. So I guess a, um, an idea for this, having me involved in the podcast here, Scott, is to ask the, the lay person Oh, it's awesome. Question. Yeah, yeah, please. Absolutely. So I'll very, very, very quickly get an explanation of, you mentioned, is it, was it a hard, hard land for, China, for China's economy? Can you please define that? Thank you, mate. I, I, I desperately try to use too much jargon, but we all, we all fall into the trap. So thank you for asking the question. Um, Hard landing is really relevant right now, actually. So rather than talk about China, I'll talk about what the Reserve Bank's trying to do. Uh, They know there is too much inflation and they know that to tame inflation, their one tool, government has lots more, which is a whole different rant, but the RBA's one tool is interest rates. And they are trying to bring inflation down fast enough so that it doesn't destroy our standard of living, but not so fast that they push us into a recession. In a perfect world, a soft landing will be, and think about a plane literally landing, right? A soft landing is you slow the engines down. You, I won't go into the airplane jargon because I don't know all the terms. Uh, usually with ailerons and rudders and stuff, I'm sure, but I don't know which direction. Um, so you, 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 you basically try and bring this in for a soft landing. You're trying to slow the economy down enough to kill inflation, but not so much to cause a recession. 
And so that would be a soft landing. You kind of economic growth goes from three to one and a half percent for six months. Inflation goes from eight to three and a half percent, and you're like, oh, good, okay, we got there, we made it. That's the soft landing. The hard landing is we're going to try really, really hard for a soft landing, but because the impact of what we're doing now won't be known for three or six months, we're going to have to guess. Imagine having to put the the the, uh, the settings into the airplane, you know, twenty five kilometers out. And say, right, in, in 23 and a half minutes, I'm going to do this. And in 48 minutes, I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to turn the engines off in 52 minutes. And again, I'm making this up, you know what I mean? Um, but doing it all half an hour in advance. And you kind of go, well, I think that's going to happen. But gee, if there's too much wind or if there's something else, then that strategy is not necessarily going to work. If, if the expected circumstances aren't what I think, then what I've just done is going to have a terrible outcome. And again, that's from an RBA perspective. The hard landing would be, Rates up, rates up, rates up, nothing happening with inflation. All of a sudden, it starts to work. Inflation starts to come back down, but as a result, the economy crashes. People lose their homes, uh, businesses go out of business, uh, employees get laid off, and you know we have, we have a 12-month-long recession because the RBA just went simply too hard. And that would be the hard landing. So the idea of not exactly crashing, but a really bumpy end to the journey, trying to get to where we're gonna go to, I, still, by the way, you know, either in either in either scenario, you come back the other side okay, but the the impacts are, v- are vastly different in terms of people's lives, the economy, businesses, the whole lot, and that's why the RBA's job is so incredibly hard because they are working six months out trying to guess what the circumstances might be and trying to guess how hard they need to put the foot on the brake or the accelerator to get to that point in a in a in a decently healthy position. You avoided the plain jargon very well. Do you Scott. like that? <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. I think, I, think was I don't good. know what I'm was... talking about, but I'm, I'm sure there's pilots listening. What's an engine? What's a plane? What's a wing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, now that maybe there's too much assumed knowledge. Hey, there. I've, I seen, I've seen Flying High, mate. I don't know all there is to know about. Pl- I, yeah, I'll tell you about you Flying High later. It it's an old, old person's movie, but it was very, very good. Is it similar to Aeroplane? Is that a movie with the the guy with the white it's hair? Leslie Nielsen. I see it on yeah. TikTok every now and then. <laughs> All the cool kids do. I still don't I'll have probably TikTok never watch the full movie. No, fair. Yeah. You should. You don't have TikTok. Cool. I don't have TikTok. I'm, I'm not cool enough. Got Perla, but he doesn't have TikTok. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, Scott, that's all I've got for you today. Do you have anything else you want to talk to the listeners about? Or mate, only to say this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad you suggested it, mate. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for sending in some questions. Um, yeah, I, hope, I think we might try to do one of these again. It was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed it. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Hopefully, listeners enjoyed it. Um, listeners, if you do enjoy it, let us know. Um, hit us up on the socials. We have a good oil podcast. Twitter account, a good old podcast, Instagram account, and on Facebook as well. So uh, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, definitely if you've got comments, only nice ones, of course, um, please let us know if, if there's stuff you want us to cover, if you like the format, if you don't like the format, um, hey, we're, we're, here for, we're here for you guys. So if you have anything you want to ask or any feedback you want to give us, then any of those, all, all the socials except for TikTok. There's no, there's no good old podcast on TikTok. Yet. <laughs> we probably should rectify that, I suppose. I've been lobbying. <laughs> we'll see how we go. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.